just here to cause chaos. That actually worked. Yeah, that went well. I'm impressed. Me too. Well, we are finally in the same place as we record this podcast. I know, this is so exciting. Ellen came to LA for a week, and we are actually getting to like sit next to each other and record, which is so much harder than we thought it was going to be. Yeah, we got used to one way, and now we're trying to do it a different way, and we are <laughs> not good with change. But on the plus side, now I can personally bother Sam. Poke. You touched my face. <laughs> Don't know how to feel about this. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> okay, Ellen, well... Who are we learning about today? We're learning about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, speaking of speaking of Marilyn Monroe, who wants to know what Ellen made me do yesterday? <laughs> I do. Because <laughs> Ellen is in LA for a week to visit me, and yesterday we weren't entirely sure what to do with ourselves, and so she looked up to see like what was near where I live, and it turns out Marilyn Monroe's grave is near where I live, and she was like, let's go see her grave. And I assumed it was going to be like a tourist site like you know, I don't know if anyone knows the Hollywood Cemetery is but it's this like big old cemetery with like lots of famous people's graves they like play movies there on the side of the mausoleum sometimes like it's a big deal but no it's like an actual cemetery where like people are still being buried to this day that we drove up to there were people mourning there were actual people like mourning their loved ones like yeah there were a lot of famous people's graves there but it was like clearly not the cemetery for famous people's graves to be like ogled at <laughs> and then we show up and we're just like wandering around trying to find Rose's grave we did find it it makes me uncomfortable to tell you that it's next to hugh hefner's oh i have thoughts about that same and we took what is the most uncomfortable of my picture of my life next to it and it will be posted on our instagram we met these couple of women who are also there ugly Marilyn Monroe's grave and one of them was like you're here you have to take the picture and I was like I'm uncomfortable but we did it <laughs> we both reflexively smiled for a picture because it's a picture yeah even though it was with the grave I also found out there's a cemetery much closer to my house than I thought there was so that was fun yeah right next to the park where she played as a child yeah in the movie theater where we used to go all the time i came home i asked my mom if there was if she knew there was a cemetery between the movie theater and the library turns out she did so that was fun <laughs> but yes let's learn about marilyn rose's life now that we've seen her place of death yeah please please tell me <laughs> All right, well, first off, Marilyn Monroe was not born Marilyn Monroe. <gasps> Gas. She was born Norma Jean Mortensen, which is, you know, a name, <laughs> in Los Angeles, California, on June 1st, 1926. So, you know, Roaring 20s, nice. Her mom was Gladys Pearl Baker, and her mom did also did not have a great time. I mean... Did it woman in that time period? Absolutely not. So she got married at 15 to this abusive older man named John Baker. And they had two kids, uh, one of which died in 1933. And the other one was Marilyn Monroe's half-sister, Bernice, who is still alive. Oh, good for her. Yeah, impressive. Yeah, she's got to be old. Mm-hmm. So the mom eventually divorces her husband, John, because, you know, he sucks and is abusive. And she gets custody of the kids. However, John just straight up kidnaps them and goes to Kentucky. 
That's so, rude. Yeah, very rude. So Marilyn Monroe doesn't even learn about her sister until she's like 12. And she doesn't even meet her till she's an adult. So they are just out of the picture. Gladys is still in L.A. 1924, she's marrying Martin Mortensen, which is where you know, Monroe gets her official last name. But they soon separated, and then they later officially got divorced. And we have no real idea who her father is. Oh, that's always fun. Yeah, yeah. Like, it could be this Mortensen guy. But it could not. It literally could be anyone else in Los Angeles. Yeah, basically. And, you know, there's a lot of people in Los Angeles in, what, 1925, so... There's a lot of people in Los Angeles always. Exactly. So, anyone. But her mom was, you know, woefully unprepared for a child because she was, you know, divorced and struggling to have a job. And she also had mental health problems, which come up later. She leaves Maryland with some foster parents, and she's visiting over the weekend. And so it seems like her early childhood, Marilyn, was doing all right. She was relatively happy. But by the time she's seven, Gladys manages to get her life together enough that she buys a house in Hollywood, and they move Marilyn in with her. Oh, good for her. Yes. This does not last very long. Oh. So, unfortunately... Her mom quickly has a breakdown and is diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So that's fun. Yeah. Yep. And so she can no longer care for her child, which means Marilyn's situation just goes unstable, upside down. So at first she's living with these lodgers who were living in her house before her mom went crazy. However, that didn't go well because one of them was sexually abusing her. I don't like that. No one does. Yeah, the alleged abuser is named George Atkinson, so that's not great. No. After that, she had a friend of her mother who was appointed head of the estate, eventually legal guardian, and this woman is named Grace Goddard, and her husband, Erwin Goddard, also known as Doc. So that's fun. But she's living with them for a few months, and then that doesn't work out for some reason. She's bounced around to two other families before finally ending up in an L.A. orphanage in 1935, where she, you know, feels abandoned by her mother's friend who promised to take care of her. Yeah, I mean, it seems like quite a few people have abandoned her at this point. Exactly. Also, I don't know why she couldn't go back to the family that was fostering her before she moved in with her mother, but that was not mentioned. I mean, they may just not have been fostering anymore. All right, fair. I feel like if you have a kid for seven years, you'd get somewhat attached to them. But anyway. I mean, probably, but, like, foster parents, like, oftentimes have a lot of kids come through their homes, and if they were, like, good foster parents who did this for a long time, like, they probably were used to kids coming and going and, like, giving them love and support while they're there and then, like, moving on. Yeah, well, either way. This was not good for poor Marilyn Monroe's development. No, it doesn't sound like it would be. Absolutely not. So she develops a stutter. She becomes pretty shy. You know, she's basically traumatized. So that's fun. Later, Grace officially becomes... Grace Goddard officially becomes her legal guardian. This is 1936. But she doesn't get her out of the orphanage till like a year later. That's a long time. I know, right? Yeah, and so then she's only with the Goddards for a few months before we realize that Doc Goddard was molesting her, 
Because said the reason Grace wasn't like taking custody of her was because she knew that her husband was a sleazeball, but like also knew that she couldn't leave her husband because it was the 1920s. Oh, I hadn't considered that. Maybe that, yeah, that's a good theory. But yeah, there was really no good situation for her. No, it doesn't sound like there was. Like all the adults that are supposed to protect her just suck. Yeah. So by then, she's just bounced around to relatives and friends and friends' relatives. And movies becomes like an escapism tool for her. So that's why she started being interested in acting. And by 1938, she was living with Grace Goddard's aunt. So she had like a stable home for about three years. Oh, that's something. Yeah, that's nice. But then the aunt was getting elderly, had health problems. So back to the Goddard's once again. Yeah. So then the Goddards were like, all right, we, uh, Doc Goddard got a new job. We have to move to West Virginia. And California's like, um, you can't just take that child with you. Good for California. Yeah. So they're like, so California's like, um, I think she's going to have to go back to the orphanage. So not good for California. I mean, not letting the molester take her with them to over state lines is good for California. Yes, yes, yes. But... Again, no, no good situation no good for Marilyn. No good situation here. So, Marilyn wants to avoid the situation so much that she marries the neighbor's son, James Daughtry, just after her 16th birthday. Like, we're talking, like, 20 days after her 16th birthday. Yeah, that's one way of handling the situation. It worked. Yeah. So she drops out of high school, becomes a housewife, and is immediately bored of this. Fair. Yeah. Because being a housewife is not very exciting. However, then her husband is 1944, so her husband has to go be deployed for World War II. Oh, fun. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So she ends up working for a munitions factory. Because, you know, that was what women were doing. Rosie the Riveter. All that jazz. Mm Mm-hmm. And a photo agency came in to take some morale-boosting pictures. You know. Yeah, like they did. Again, a la Rosie the Riveter. (laughs) And she is in these pictures, she realizes, like, I'm good at this. So even though none of her pictures are used, she's like, well, this is my calling now, and just takes up modeling. So meanwhile, her husband's, like, writing her letters being like, hey, what are you doing? Stop. (laughs) And she's like, what are you going to do? Come back from the war to stop me? And just keeps going. (laughs) So she, like, moves out of her in-law's house and just gets a contract with a modeling agency and starts to do pinup photos. So we're already beginning her status as like a sex symbol. She just begins like crafting her image with you know, the dyeing her hair blonde and straightening it. And whatever, however you imagine Marilyn Monroe, this is when she began to look like that. And from then on, she moved on from modeling to acting and she gets herself her stage name. Marilyn is from the Broadway actress Marilyn Miller, who was very famous, and Monroe was her mom's maiden name. That looks like a nice homage. Yeah. Her mom stays alive for a long time, just she's in the hospital, so she's visiting her every now and then, but she's not a big part of her life. Yeah, that's fair. Mm -hmm. So 1946, she divorces James because he's against her career, and you know what? She has bigger and better things to do, Sam. Yeah. You can't keep Marilyn Monroe as a housewife? Come on, bro. Yeah. Ugh, men. Exactly. So she spends her next few years, like, learning about acting, getting bit parts, making connections, 
making connections basically meant like entertaining the male directors and producers. Marilyn was very good at leveraging herself. She saw how unfairly women were treated and she was able to make use of that, which is very impressive considering Hollywood at the time. Yeah, use your femininity for your power. <laughs> Wear that flippy skirt if it gets you to the next spot. <laughs> so eventually she has her breakthrough, but meanwhile she's taking nude photos. That's fun. All, all interesting stuff is happening. Good for her. <laughs> so finally she leaves this Columbia acting agency and she moves on and becomes the protege slash mistress of this dude named Johnny Hyde, who is a vice president of a different acting agency. And he's getting Which her... One? The William Morris Agency. Yeah, that's where my sister used to work when she first moved back to Oh my god! Yeah. Wow. Well, actually, William Morris was bought by Endeavor, like, in the early thousands. And so now it's William Morris Endeavor, and my sister worked for William Morris Endeavor. Cool. Yeah, that was her first, like, Hollywood job when she came back from college. Your sister and Marilyn Monroe are basically the same person. (laughs) (laughs) So Hyde's giving her some small roles, which is good, and it's enough that she gets mentioned in a magazine, and this effectively made her from just a model to an actual actress. Yeah, so she's, she's getting it. So Hyde manages to get her a seven year contract with Fox. Which is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then immediately dies a few days later from a heart attack. Ooh. I know. At least he did his job. <laughs> he did. <laughs> and she seemed to, like, actually like him. So she was pretty upset by that. Yeah, that's fair. So just add another trauma to the pile. Fair. <laughs> so, so within these movies with her contract, she's getting her sexy image and people are becoming fans. She's getting a following. People are sending her letters by the thousands. In 1952, she has a a scandal with some nude photos. And by scandal, I mean that she went up and publicly announced, yeah, I took some nude photos. And she's like, I wanted to get this out there before it was discovered. And this somehow made her even more popular. You know, getting in front of the scandal always works. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that you learn about Marilyn Monroe is that she was a master of public opinion. Good for her. That was her greatest weapon, and she used it expertly. She knew how to use her fame to her advantage, especially when it got up against these powerful men and these difficult social times. However, this unfortunately had the result of further typecasting her into the sex symbol that she was known as. Yeah, I mean, women could really only play, like, one role back then. Exactly. She's also begins to get her reputation as difficult to work with. She would show up late. Her li- She wouldn't remember her lines. She would demand to do retakes. Uh, a lot of this is blamed on she had some perfectionism, and she was upset that she had, like, a general lack of control over, like, the situation, how, like, the director would always want to change with how she was doing things she also like uh, relied on her acting coach who was usually like there at the time uh, whenever she was doing her scenes which kind of pissed off some of the directors but yeah, yeah. i could see how that would be like a power play thing <laughs> no one tells marilyn monroe what to do apparently 
1953, she's put into this movie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is very famous. You know? And <laughs> I believe you. I haven't seen it. <laughs> she sings her song, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Is that where that comes from? Yes. Um, fascinating. Love to hear origins of phrases. Mm-hmm. But this also helped typecast her into the dumb blonde stereotype, where, you know, she would pretend to be airheaded or childish. A lot of this was her acting persona, but because it was so ubiquitous and because she would occasionally have to use her acting persona in real life for her advantage, it became like her general persona where people just believe mm. she was like that. So that wasn't great. And she also had to deal with a lot of you know, condescension, sexism, bullying from the male co-stars and directors. Because, you know, of course she did. Of course she did. Yeah. Why, why would we expect any differently? So she's coping by using barbiturates, amphetamines, and alcohol, which, let me tell you, didn't help. Really? <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> never would have thought that. <laughs> so she's very obviously also getting some mental health issues. Probably genetic, probably a result of the so much trauma. Yeah, between the genetic predisposition and the, like, just mountain of trauma, can't blame her. Mm-hmm. So, she's absolutely, like, pigeonholed as the sex symbol in December 1953, when Hugh Hefner, that son of a gun... Who is buried next to her for some reason. Yes, so infuriating. And this was in 2017 when they put him next to her. Well, he probably bought it in, like, 1930. Well, Bernice should have done something to stop this. Who? <laughs> her half-sister. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, he publishes nude photos of her in his Playboy magazine without her consent. That's so illegal now. I know! I know it probably wasn't then, but, like, now it's super illegal. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Gloria Steinem gets one up on him later, but... <laughs> We're not there yet. Yeah, no, that's going to take a while. At this point, she's wildly popular, though. Obviously, the nude photo thing doesn't really help her image, but it does help her popularity. But regardless of that, she still has, like, this little baby contract. Ah, uh, so they're paying her, like, nothing and treating her like a piece of garbage? Absolutely, Sam. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. She's getting paid far less. She can't choose her own projects. So she wants to, like, you know, do some more serious acting work as opposed to standing there and looking pretty. But they're not letting her. And this one dude, whose name was Daryl Zanuck, just hated her for no real reason. He just thought that she would, wouldn't earn enough money and that he personally didn't like her. Well, that's rude. Exactly. We so, personally don't like you. Exactly. So... <laughs> In January 1954, he suspends her because Marilyn's like, I don't want to be in your movie, Girl Who Wore Pink Tights. That was what the movie was called, and I can understand why she wouldn't want to be in it. Is it just a video of a girl wearing pink tights? I'm assuming there's some very thin plot like most 50s movies. I don't like that. Of course not. So Marilyn Monroe gets ahead of the negative publicity. And she marries Joe DiMaggio, who is a former New York Yankees star. Yeah, he's like one of the most famous baseball players of all time. Exactly. And this puts her in the newspaper, and it also gets her some good press. And so then she go on a honeymoon to Japan, which mm. 
yeah, Joe DiMaggio was doing was also had some business he had to do there. And from there, she travels to Korea, uh, you know, South Korea, where the war's happening. That's still going on. Ah. And she's performing for the troops. Good for her. Exactly. And this was, like, the best PR stunt she could have done. Because after doing this, she's, like, she's left Fox, and she's gone and volunteered to help the America's troops fight the communists. Oh, that is some PR gold right there. <laughs> exactly. Like a good USO tour to, like, really stick to them. So she gets back to the U.S., and Fox is realizing what they've done. <laughs> they've pissed off a famous, beautiful star who knows how to spin the public. Oof, Fox should have known better. Mm-hmm. Can't blame anyone but yourself, buddy. Yeah, so by March, whole thing was wrapped up. She was able to settle with Fox, and they promised her a $100,000 bonus. Decent amount of money. And a star role in this movie, The Seven Year Itch, which was like a Broadway show that they were making as a movie, also very famous. And this is the movie with the subway scene. Oh, you mean the skirt? Exactly, the skirt. Oh, I love the skirt. Everyone loves the skirt. So the subway scene was actually part of a publicity stunt in New York. And 2,000 people were like around watching her do the skirt thing. And it became wildly famous, made an international news. And then Joe DiMaggio lost his goddamn mind because he couldn't handle having a wife who was more famous than him. Bro. I know. That's... Why are men always so threatened? This keeps happening. Like, he was already one of the most famous men in the world. Wouldn't being married to the most famous woman, like, help? No, because then she's overshadowing him, Sam. Why can't everyone just be, like, Annie Oakley's husband and realize that their wife's better and just, like, be the manager? <laughs> Most people have too fragile an ego. The male ego is stupid. Exactly. However, have you ever seen the movie The House Bunny? I have not. So more or less, the plot is Anna Ferris is a playboy bunny who gets, like, fired and goes and becomes a house mom for a sorority. <laughs> Um, but there's one scene where she's going on a date and she's wearing like the white dress kind of like Marilyn Monroe and she want and she stands over a subway grate to like do the thing but it wasn't a subway grate it was like an exhaust grate and so the air coming out was like piping hot and she like burns her legs oh, no. and it's really funny actually <laughs> and every time I think about the Marilyn Monroe scene that's always what I think of because like it's <laughs> the best parody of it ever I love it. <laughs> yeah, on a way less cheery note, Joe becomes abusive because uh, of course he does. What a bitch. I know. And Marilyn divorces him after only nine months of marriage. Good for her. Get yourself out of that toxic situation, girl. Yeah, very good. After being in this seven-year itch movie, she went ahead and created her own Marilyn Monroe Productions. And this was like a big blow against the Hollywood studio system in which these giant studios were essentially had created a monopoly and controlled every aspect of their actors' lives. So this was instrumental in helping destroy that, which is great. And she was like, all right, listen, I want out of these sex roles and also 
Fox never gave me my $100,000 that they said they would. Right. Yeah, so any contract they have is null and void. The press was not on her side. And, you know, that's not helping her mental health. So she's getting some therapy, but again, this is the 1950s. So... Therapy didn't exist? Eh, they were like, lay on a couch and tell me some of your feelings. And they're like, you want to give me some COVID mechanisms? They're like, no. How about some electroshock therapy? Exactly. And that's how that went. The whole 1955 year is kind of full of upside downs. She's also trying to work on her acting. So she's trying to become a triple threat and, you know, get that singing under her belt. Which means she becomes a huge fan of Ella Fitzgerald. Because everyone who listens to Ella Fitzgerald is a huge fan. (laughs) She's fantastic, and she will be a future episode. But in 1955, she calls this place called the Columbo, which is this very, very famous club. Okay, it's where all the greats go to perform and get their start. Like, for instance, Frank Sinatra started off there. You had Cary Grant, you know, a bunch of other people. And they wouldn't let Ella Fitzgerald perform, because, you know... She's black. Rude. I know. So Marilyn Monroe calls and she's like, listen, you get Ella Fitzgerald up there and I will sit in the front row every night and you can take as many pictures of me as you want. (laughs) (laughs) You said star power for a good girl. Exactly. Single-handedly breaking down racism. (laughs) True to word, she keeps her promise. She shows up every night. She listens to Ella Fitzgerald. And they meet after the show one night, and they become best friends. It's adorable. And they, like, remain friends all the way up to her death, which is very sweet. And in other part of her social life, she starts dating this playwright, Arthur Miller. Oh, and Arthur Miller was under investigation for communism. Oh, was he red-listed? Everyone at the time was being invested for communism, so that was fun. <laughs> you know, classic McCarthyism. Yeah. Good stuff. This is a good time in Hollywood. <laughs> a lot of drama. Yeah. <laughs> so the FBI starts investigating, you know, Marilyn Monroe for communism. Mm-hmm. She wasn't, like, rolling over and being like, they're like, hey, can you, can you tell us about how your cousin, your boyfriend's a communist? And she's like, no. <laughs> They're like, she's a communist, let's go. (laughs) But of course, you know, what what were they going to find? Unfortunately, her production studio that she'd been trying to make, Marilyn Monroe Productions, was unable to finance movies alone. But the sheer fact that she had created her own production studio and that the public was so on her side gave her enough leverage that she was able to negotiate a much better contract with Fox. Mm-hmm. where they gave her more control over her movies and she had better pay. And also they were going to help finance some of her movies for her own production studio. Nice. So in the end, very clear they victory. had a first look deal. Mm-hmm. All of this managed to get the press back on her side. Mm-hmm. So New York Times is calling her a shrewd businesswoman, you know, quote unquote. They called it an example of the individual against the herd for years to come. Basically, everyone was now firmly in Marilyn Monroe's corner, which is awesome, considering she needed that. Yeah. 
considering everything else she went through. <laughs> However, she was being criticized for, you know, dating alleged communist Miller. And Walter Winchill, some guy, commented, Hey, America's best-known blonde moving picture star is now the darling of the left-wing intelligentsia. So that's fun. That is fun. <laughs> Good for her. I guess. I don't yeah, know. That's something. <laughs> so she legally changes her name to Marilyn Monroe by this point because it was already her stage name. It was already what was happening. Anyway, on June 29th, 1956, she gets married to Miller, which is fun. They got married in New York. They had a Jewish ceremony. Oh. She converts to Judaism. Hey. Which is great. Yeah. M O T. Member of the tribe. Oh, never heard that before. Um, says it all the time. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So she converts to Judaism, and this led Egypt to ban all her films. Oh. Because of course they would. Okay. Yeah. Classic Egypt. The media also very much enjoyed the dichotomy between the two, where you know she's this huge sex symbol and he's this intellectual. A variety headline said Egghead Weds Hourglass. <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> oh, another detail, J- just to add some more fire to the trauma. She had endometriosis. Oof. Yeah, that's where the uterus just starts growing extra. Yeah, uterine cysts. It's super painful. Yeah. Terrible disease. Very common. Mm-hmm. And because it's only a, a woman-only problem... The only treatment is hormones, which is really shitty. Yeah, there's, like, no research done on it ever. So she had that, so that was something. And 1957, she has a miscarriage that was likely partly due to the endometriosis. Yeah, it's really hard to have kids when you have that. Exactly. Like, this just goes to her credit, where she was able to do all of this, even through what's been described debilitating pain with the disease. So, very impressive. Another big movie she did was called Some Like It Hot. Oh, I've heard of that one. Yes, it's very famous. I, of course, haven't seen it because what movies have I seen? But (laughs) very big. If our friend Margaret ever listens to this, she's going to hit me. Why? She's a huge fan of Marilyn Monroe. And I think she did try to make me watch this movie, (laughs) but I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) I think I have seen this movie, actually. So she was in this role of Sugarcane, which, first off, that name. <laughs> that's, like, that's like the level of some of the Bond girl names. Ugh. Just a step above Pussy Galore. Pussy Galore is the best name. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> but anyways, this was another dumb blonde role. And, you know, she was trying to get away from that, but... Yeah, her husband Miller was like, come on, it'll be it'll be good. And also they offered her so much money. Fair. Yes. Not only did they offer her like her standard pay, which by itself was absurd, they offered her 10% of the film's profits. And considering this film quickly became a critical and financial success, that's a lot of money. Yeah, fair. So good for her. However, this film became like legendary. For how difficult it was to film. She was extremely difficult to work with. She kept demanding retakes. She didn't remember her lines. She would refuse to act as directed. Because, you know, 
No one tells Marilyn Monroe what to do. No one puts baby in a corner. Exactly. (laughs) At one point, her co-star Curtis famously stated that kissing her was, quote, like kissing Hitler, unquote. Oh my god. Due to the number of retakes. I don't know what those two have to do with each other. What? Like kissing (laughs) Hitler. That is, that is a insult on like a different category. Also, we're in 1958. Hitler was like 10 years ago. I mean, yeah, but this was also the time period where Hitler was the main villain in like every movie. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> so, Marilyn herself was calling the production a sinking ship. And, but she's saying, listen, why should I worry? I have no phallic symbol to lose. Oh, that's a good quote. I know. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe had a lot of good quotes. Of course she did. They became known as, like, Monroe-isms, because they were part of her persona. But the movie, finally, once they actually got it... <laughs> once they put it in the can. ...was a massive success. Okay. And one of her most famous movies. Unfortunately, she then divorces Arthur Miller... Yes. Luckily, I don't think this one was abusive. Oh. So that's good, I guess. One interesting fact is that she got a, quote, Mexican divorce, which apparently was when Hollywood stars would just go across the border to Mexico (laughs) to get a divorce because it was easier and cheaper. I mean, that makes sense. (laughs) It's really not that far away. It's only like a couple hours to Mexico from here. Yeah, like a Vegas wedding, but in reverse. Yeah. Honestly, they're about equal distance from LA. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we're in January 1961 at this point, and then a lot of things happen at once. She gets some surgery for the endometriosis. I'm sure it helps a little, but not enough. They probably removed like the active cysts that they couldn't really stop more from growing. Yeah, they're like, all right, that should help a bit. I mean, admittedly, this was the 1960s, so like. That's probably, they didn't have hormonal birth control at that point, did they? Because, like, that's really the only thing they can help with endometriosis right now, even. I think they were getting hormonal birth control. Okay. We'll have to do an episode about Margaret Sanger. But then let's talk about uh, her racism. I mean, yeah. She's a fun character, though. I'm excited for that one. Yeah. I'll probably do that one. (laughs) (laughs) She's hospitalized for depression for a few weeks, so that's not fun. She, for some reason, is back on speaking terms with Joe DiMaggio, even though he sucks. Honey, you can do better. I know! She really can! And for that, she starts dating Frank Sinatra, which is nice. Damn. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, get in with that Italian mob. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a... We're gonna get to it later, but there's a lot of different conspiracy theories about her death. And the mafia... Plays a part in some of them. Ah, yes, fam. (laughs) Mess me up. (laughs) Another big thing that happens later, near the end of her life, is she gets sick. And they're trying to, she's trying to work on this movie. And, you know, she's struggling. And then the studio's pressing her into into saying that she's faking her sickness. Because mental illness isn't real, right? Yeah, although I think she was, like, actually, like, physically sick as well. (laughs) But anything Fox could do to screw over, they were gonna do. She can't get this movie done. She then takes a break to go sing Happy Birthday to John F. Kennedy. (laughs) 
That did not help her relationship with the studio. I mean, no, but it helps her relationship with the world. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it gets even better. She was in, like, she had this incredibly scandalous costume on where she was in this, like, beige, skin tight dress. So it looked like she was naked. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like very Barbie doll esque with old beige. Exactly. So this irritated Fox so, so very much. And there were so many problems by this point. And then, at the same time, she's also doing, like, some nude photos. You know, sending some nudes. Good for her. (laughs) Did she get a you-up text from Joe DiMaggio? Uh, She probably did, because he sucked. (laughs) So she's doing that, and she's, like, the first major star to do new photos. So that's another scandal in the whole. Then things... Things go wrong. Oh, they haven't already? Oh, they're gonna go even wronger, Sam. Oh, no. Or as they say, more wrong. So the movie she'd been trying to make was called Something's Gotta Give. Uh, I wrote this in my notes as Something's Gotta Give, which I assumed I would remember was the name of the movie. But instead, I just thought that things were going so wrong. Something was gonna happen. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you get for ambiguous notes and titles. (laughs) Looks like a very famous movie, I think. Yes. But Fox was pissed off about all of these delays and all of these scandals, and they were losing money, and they were already trying to film this other movie called Cleopatra. So they just straight up fired her and sued her for the damages. Not cool. And they replaced her with another actress, but the director was like, um, no. I'm doing this with with Monroe. Why else would I be here? (laughs) And then, so the studio decided, you know what? Time for a smear campaign. So they're getting negative publicity, blaming her for what's happening with the movie, saying she was mentally insane. But the public is almost always on Monroe's side. So they ended up having to reopen negotiations with her, get a new contract. And she basically, one last time, wins over Fox. Wow. Good for her. She was fantastic at fighting the studio system. It's very impressive. Even other very powerful actors were struggling. Yeah, I mean, remember Hedy Lamar tried to start her own studio around the same time and, like, made two movies and then had to go back to the like big studios because she couldn't quite make it work exactly even like the white men at the time yeah were barely making a dent then unfortunately is marilyn Monroe's death so she dies on august 4th 1962 at her home in brentwood so the story kind of goes something like this her housekeeper eunice murray was like something's wrong she just wakes up in the middle of the night and is like Yeah, no, something's up. So she goes to check on Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn has locked herself in her room, which, never a good sign. And she's banging on the door, and she's like, hey, Miss Monroe, you alive? And getting no response. She's like, that's not good. So she calls her psychiatrist, who's like, oh yeah, we can't open this door? This seems bad. (laughs) <laughs> the psychiatrist is like, hey, it's Monroe. You wanna you wanna come out? And they're like, nothing. So they call the police. 
about time. Mm-hmm. The police bang, uh, breaks open the window to her room and crawls in, and they see her passed out in the bed, surrounded by pill bottles, and they decide that it's probably a suicide. Yeah. Because she had mental health issues. She had overdosed in the past, and the sheer amount of pill bottles surrounding her was way too much that it could have been an accidental overdose. Like, she wasn't on the edge. Like, this was a concentrated amount. Yeah. So That's too bad. It was. Thus is the tragic end to a, honestly, very misunderstood woman who was really doing her best in a society that was against her at almost every turn. I mean... She had a great life and career for, like, the time period and the disadvantages she was born into and all, like, she had nothing in her corner and she had a really great career. Exactly. But there's a couple of conspiracy theories that she didn't actually have commit suicide. Some of the favorites are that she had an affair with either Robert Kennedy or JFK or both at the same time. (laughs) And that she was allegedly going to reveal this and cause a scandal. And dead because Robert Kennedy had like 11. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, and that she was killed as some kind of cover-up. So, probably not true. No, but it's fun. It is very fun. There's a couple others that she was killed by the mob. Most notably that Jimmy Hoppe was involved in her death, who was like a famous... Yeah, union leader slash mob leader. Those two kind of unfortunately mm-hmm. became very intertwined. Yep. They're so like, that could be it. And there are so many people who are just spitting out these theories that in 1982, the LAPD actually like double checked and looked into the case <laughs> again. And they're like, guys, listen, it's really probably just a suicide. Yeah. We can't find anything. <laughs> All signs point to this. And, yeah, nothing. She was, of course, buried in L.A., about less than a mile from your house. Ah, yes, let's continue triangulating my position. Exactly. You know, that's fun. Hugh Hefner was buried right next to her because he sucks. Ugh. And, and you know that he, like, very purposefully was like, I want to be buried next to Marilyn Monroe and, like, bought that spot. And... Absolutely. Because he died in, like, 2017. And I'm sure and... he used to brag about how he had, like, the burial spot next to Marilyn Monroe. God, he's the worst. Ugh. Final remarks is that she essentially created, like, a parody of herself with her persona and her, like, use of the sex symbol and dumb blonde stereotypes. And she was a master of public opinion. Mm. Yeah. Just with how she was able to play the press and how she was able to gain the sympathy of the people and use that against the studios. A lot of the times the studios would use, would take advantage of their actors and she's using her fame against them, which is fantastic. Good for her. So, you want to hear some quotes, Sam? Yes, give me the quote wall. Yes, quote wall. So, I've got a couple of these, because they're pretty great. If I'd observed all the rules, I'd never have got anywhere. So that's nice. Yeah, that's a good one. Imperfectionist beauty 
Madness is genius, and it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. <laughs> I like that one. Iconic. <laughs> Fear is stupid. So are regrets. <laughs> Dogs never bite me. Just humans. Is she saying that she's not human? No, I think she's saying that people bite her. Oh. Maybe you're into that. We'll see. I don't know if she was. <laughs> but it's what happened. It's all make-believe, isn't it? Just, you know, she had her whimsical persona. I don't mind living in a man's world as long as I can be a woman in it. Which, I think, really describes how she lived her life. So there was an interview where they were discussing her nude photos. Is it true you had nothing on? And she's like, it's not true I had nothing on. I had the radio on. Oh my god, iconic. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And that is Marilyn Monroe. Oh, does that mean it's my turn? Yes, mess me up, fam. Let's go. Okay, Ellen. Have you ever heard of the dancing plague? Of, eight, of 1518. Of course I have. What do you think I am? An unsolved amateur? <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm probably going to tell you stuff you already know. Because I saw a TikTok. Um, <laughs> where uh, Sam gets all of her knowledge. Yes. And then I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. And so I looked into it. And I had heard of the dancing plague before, but like probably not since like high school history when it was one of those like fun stories they told you to distract you. Um, and so, more or less, for those of you who don't know, Dancing Plague of 1518 was when the citizens of Strasbourg, which is, at the time was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but now is, like, up in northern France. I've actually been there because where I studied abroad was, like, an hour from there, so we would go there on weekends sometimes. So in July of 1518, in this small town in France, a woman named Mrs. Trophea stepped into the street and just began like wildly dancing she was unable to stop (laughs) and she just kept dancing until she collapsed from exhaustion and then once she woke back up after resting for a bit she just started dancing again (laughs) and she continued doing this for days and days and by the end of the week more than 30 other people had joined her in this like compulsive dancing fit (laughs) These people, they kept going, like, sprained ankles, broken bones, whatever happened, they kept dancing. Like, they were, it was like they were immune to injury, they didn't need food, like, pretty much they danced until they passed out, and then they woke up and they danced again. The story is always funny until you get to all the details, and then it just gets horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good time. (laughs) Is it? Yes, it is. I mean, the city authorities, which pretty much means, like, the city judge and the church at the time, were like, you know what these people probably need is, like, a specific spot to dance in. Wait, what? So they opened up, like, the dance halls, and they, like, created, like, a town square dance area, and they were like, this is where you go to do the dancing. If all these people need to dance, like, let's give them a spot to dance in. That was their solution? Yes. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, so they opened up dance halls, they opened up town square, they were like, here's where you dance, let's go, fam. <laughs> oh my god. But this, of course, made it worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because by the end of this whole mess, 400 people in this, like, small town in France in 1518 were compulsively dancing in this town. Oh god. <laughs> Most of them died. Oh, <laughs> And then, just, like, almost as suddenly as it started in September, it stopped. 
more or less the 400 people who had been dancing were all dead at that point, and all right. the dancing was just over. Cool. And apparently, so this isn't the only time this dancing fit has happened to a town. It However, other times? Yes. However, <laughs> the 1518 event was the most thoroughly documented and the most recent. There oh, are, okay. There's, like, evidence that happened in towns earlier than that, all, going all the way back to, like, 500 BCE Rome. Well, not, like, the city of Rome, but, like, the Roman Empire. Wow. Yeah. And... Pretty much, it's believed that these dancing fits took place mostly between the 10th and 16th century. The second best known one happened in 1374 in the Rhine River Valley. But there's a few different reasons for why these dancing plagues occurred during this time period. Oh, hit me with the theories. (laughs) So, my personal favorite, and what I think is correct, is demonic possession. Obviously. Obviously. Again, I told you the main authority in the town was the church, so... That was the first thing they said, was that all these people were being possessed by the devil. Yeah, you'd think they would just, like, have a max exorcism, as opposed to a dancing hall, though. (laughs) You know, that would have made some sense. But also, at the time, they thought the people's blood may have been overheating, causing them to be in, like, a manic state. Sure. I don't think that's necessarily how that works, but, you know, it's a thought. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in the 20th century, people started looking into it again to, like, think of things other than demonic possession and hot blood. And so some 20th century historians believe they may have been consuming bad rye flour that was contaminated with a fungal disease called ergot, which is known to produce convulsions. However, I personally don't think the convulsions in dancing look that much similar. So that, that one's iffy on my opinion. Is this similar to what was happening in the town of Salem, where they had that fungus? No, that, I don't know what that fungus was called, and it was probably like a similar mass eating the same flower that went bad thing, but like, no one was dancing convulsively in Salem. Yeah, yeah, you know. Oh, it was probably like the same idea, yeah. Mass insanity. Mass insanity. Well... An American sociologist named Robert Bartholomew has the what is most people believe is probably the right idea here, and he thinks that the dancers are probably adherents of heretical sects, of, like, culty type things. So the most widely accepted theory is that everyone kind of had a mass psychogenic disorder. So, like, this is like a mass hysteria diagnosis, more or less. That's happened before. It has happened before, and it does make the most sense here. However, I think demonic possession's a lot more fun. Oh, no, I agree with you completely. Yeah, but mass hysteria usually happens in times of really high stress for towns, and so in 1518 in Strasbourg, there was a series of famines as well as a really large smallpox and syphilis outbreak all at the same time, uh-huh. which was affecting the citizens. So medical historians nowadays think that the mass hysteria of the time was caused by all the stress from the two different serious disease outbreaks and the famine. So, you know, while that probably was the truth, I think they were possessed. <laughs> Dancer cares away. Yeah. And also, this region of that point, Holy Roman Empire, modern day France at the time had a belief that anyone who didn't like properly honor St. Vitus, the patron saint of epileptics and dancers, would be forced to dance. So 
there were some who believed that these people just hadn't been paying their proper tribute to this, like, saint <laughs> who, if you pissed him off, would make you dance. I had no idea punishment for pissing off a saint was dancing. I had no idea that there was a patron saint of epileptics and dancing. <laughs> but you know what? There is. It reminds me of that messed up fairy tale of where the woman gets those, like, red ballet slippers and can't stop dancing. Oh, yeah. I know that one. Yeah. It's, it's another one of those disturbing ones. Yeah, very Grimm's Brothers. <sighs> the Grimm's Brothers. So depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were inspired by this. Yeah, maybe. All right. Well, we've discovered a tragic star's life and this tragic town event. So, Sam, what have you learned today? I learned about Marilyn Monroe, who I already knew a good bit about before this, but like, just had such a fascinating, tragic life. And like, there was even more trauma than I thought that I learned about today. So. There's always more trauma, yeah. Sam. I also learned that she's buried less than a mile from my house, which I am disturbed by. <laughs> did not know that. Like, there's a military cemetery about a mile from my house, also. I did not know there was like another cemetery in this area <laughs> until yesterday. Glad I could help expand your horizons. <sighs> what did you learn? <laughs> I learned about the dancing plague and all the theories behind it. For instance, demonic possession, absolutely the most likely. Oh yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. uh, the contaminated flower thing, yeah, yeah, maybe. The mass hysteria thing, probably. Yeah, yeah, fine. I don't. That might be the most scientifically likely. But like, also, what if they just pissed off a saint? You know, that could be it. Yeah. Well, the world may never know. Well, if you would like to follow us, you can find our podcast most places you get your podcasts. We're on Instagram at KS Podcast. We are now on Twitter at underscore KS Podcast. Yeah, Twitter. I'm terrified of it. Um, and you can email us at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com if you have episode ideas or just want to tell us your thoughts. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the chaos. Safe travels. 